We live in a web of anxiety. Worry for and about our family, anxiety, stress about our jobs, and foreboding concerning our futures. You know, didn't you hear that the Zika virus is posed to infect a bunch of the Western Hemisphere? It's spreading crazy fast. Didn't didn't you hear our economy is going to collapse? We're going to be left desperate without any food, without a roof over our heads. Didn't you hear? Terrorists are planning right now to blow up our communities, our cities, and to destroy our way of life. Didn't you hear Trump and Clinton, famine and war, plague and shootings? Didn't you hear E. coli at Chipotle? What are we going to do about food, people? Hand-wringing may not be our physical posture all the time, but it certainly is our internal disposition. According to a computer scientist at the University of Southern California who studies fear trends, this is partly the result of a fear-rich social media culture that tends to go viral before a threat becomes real or a virus itself goes viral. For instance, in the fall of 2014, Americans ranked the Ebola virus as their top health care concern, despite the fact that there was only one reported case in the nation at the time. Within weeks, fear of the virus was spreading everywhere, but the U.S. Centers for Disease Control only confirmed four cases. Now, why is this? Well, when we hear about a threat, we respond to it as if it were real, even though we haven't done the hard work of actually evaluating the potential of risk. Once we feel threatened, we actually believe that we are threatened, and then we're more likely to spread that fear around to other people. Fear, worry, anxiety, they drive us to despair and panic, and worst of all, They so narrowly fix our attention on the -the on-the-ground details of our lives and our world that we don't recognize God's activity and we don't lift our gaze to seek his help. This is the fourth week in our series, Playlist, Psalms for the Head and the Heart. In this series of messages, we're focusing on selected psalms in order to enter into the song that the Bible wants us to sing. We're looking at several psalms, seven of them over six weeks, that can give us an orientation to entire groups within the book of Psalms. And so thus far in the series, we've looked at a song of worship, Psalm 63, a song of lament, Psalm 13, and a song of confession, Psalm 51. And today we're looking at what I'm calling a song of confidence, Psalm 121. And now is as good a time as any to turn in your Bible to Psalm 121 to find the notes in the section of your weekly welcome or your mobile app. And while you do that, I want to introduce us to Psalm 121 by way of two comments. First, this psalm is after something slightly different than the three psalms that we've studied so far in this series. With each of the previous three psalms, we focused our attention on a practice, something that you and I can do either more or less intentionally in order to benefit our spiritual lives. So we practice worship, lament, and confession. But this psalm is after something that precedes practices. 
That doesn't mean that practical application is absent in what follows, but Psalm 121 is seeking to change the way that you look at God and your life and the world within which we find ourselves. Psalm 121 is seeking to move us from our godless, hand-wringing anxiety to confidence because God is very, very much involved in his world. Here's an analogy that might help us capture what I believe God wants to do today as we reflect on this psalm. You know, most of us live our lives watching a 3D movie without putting on the real 3D glasses that they give you at the box office when you purchase your tickets. We've learned to see enough of the movie to make it worth watching, but we just simply don't know what we're missing. We're missing some lifelike aspects, clarity, vividness. They, they could introduce us to an entire dimension that is otherwise missing from view. Psalm 121 provides that third dimension and gives us the glasses within which to see it. So my first introductory comment is an encouragement to set your expectations as we embark on a journey through this psalm. This is about fundamental realities. Second introductory comment has to do with the word journey itself. If you have your Bible open at this point, I want you to glance at the superscription at the head of Psalms 120 through 134. Just flip through a couple pages, scroll down on your phone. These are called the Psalms of Ascent. And the reason is pretty straightforward. In the Old Testament, there are details for a number of festivals in which the people of Israel were invited to participate. These, these festivals took place in the capital city of Jerusalem, and so pilgrims would journey from all over Israel up, since Jerusalem is elevated, to this city of God. When one travels up a mountain, he or she ascends, thus the psalms of ascent. These devoted worshipers would sing these psalms of ascent together while they journeyed up to Jerusalem. So keep the imagery of journey in mind as we read this psalm once through now and as we engage it together today. Psalm 121, verses 1 through 8. Follow along as I read. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. This psalm points to three realities from which we draw our confidence, causing us to sing a song of confidence. Here's the first reality. We need help. Look again at the first verse of Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? In the first verse of this psalm, we're immediately introduced to the presenting problem that poses the question, where does my help come from? The question about the source of help arises out of a need for help. But in what specifically is help needed? Well, the first part of the verse tips us off. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. 
The need for help is in some way connected to looking to the mountains, but we're not entirely sure what the in some way is. And as a result, a number of interpretations have popped up, and I want to outline them for us so that we can see where the psalmist is heading. So option number one. Some have observed that in the Old Testament, mountains are often associated with God. That is, they stand in metaphorically for God. And so on this view, the psalmist is simply equating God with mountains because they signify strength and stability in the midst of need. So the answer to the question of verse 1, which is then found in verse 2, my help comes from the Lord, is simply a parallel thought to that of the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who is strong and stable, just like those mountains over there. Option number two. Some have noted that the mountains are the place in which non-Israelites worshipped idols, and so the psalmist's action of looking to the mountains is one of contrast. You know, though the pagans are the ones who look to the mountains for their gods to come through, I look to the Lord himself, not one who's just simply associated with the mountains, but the one who made the mountains. Option number three, some have thought that the mountains, though in a poetic context here in the Psalms, simply refer to mountains. That is, the psalmist is looking at the actual mountains up ahead and in recognizing the need to traverse those mountains says, oh God, help me. Now, if you were paying any attention a few minutes ago, then you might know which option I favor. I think options one and two have some merit because the poetic parallels that we find in the Psalms often equate God with something, lots of things in fact, in the natural world. And because there are often contrasts made between the gods of the nations, the gods of the non-Israelites up in the hills or in the mountains, and the one true God. But option number three seems most compelling to me because of the location of Psalm 121 in this batch of songs of ascent, and because... As we just heard as I read, and we'll see as we get into the details, verses 3 through 8 have very tangible journey and travel scenarios in view. So the imagery of journeying up a mountain is the key to interpreting this psalm because the concrete journey of that Israelite, those Israelites, so many, many years ago reminds us to keep the emphasis of this psalm on the real-life challenges of walking up a mountain on the way to Jerusalem. That's the origin of the psalm, and we've got to keep that in mind as we engage it. And only when we've done that job can we move on to our metaphorical journey up the mountain, our day in and day out life of walking with God in all of the big and small anxieties that we face. Additionally, the journey of moving up this mountain, this journeying language is so important, and you've got to catch this to understand this psalm, because the psalmist is concerned with the entire process of getting from point A to point B, rather than pinpointing a specific acute moments of need. The we need help of Psalm 121 is a statement of fact about the entirety of life's journey as a human being, not about specific extreme moments of need, tragedy and sickness and chaos of all sorts, and not about specific consequences from sin, broken relationships, isolation, and fear more generally. The psalmist 
is concerned with the entire journey up the mountain as a whole because the psalmist understands what it means to be a human with all of the inherent limitations that come with that label. You know, the Bible word for being human with all of the inherent limitations that come with the label is creature. Creature. Now, due to an overly naturalistic culture and worldview, which thinks primarily in terms of cause and effect relationships, we don't think of ourselves as creatures. Our default setting and what we operate in day in and day out then is of an independent, competent human being, but not a creature. And as a result, most of us need God, recognize that we need God, ask God for help in extreme needs and crisis moments, ask for God's help when we're dealing with sin and needing forgiveness, but we don't recognize that we need God for help every second of every day because that's how we're made as creatures. Uh, Let me put this into everyday terms for us. My guess is that I could have a conversation with you when this service is over, and I could ask you if you need help with anything. And most likely you would say, oh, do I need help? You're you're a churchy person. You kind of recognize this. You're honest with yourself. You're self-aware enough to say, I've got big decisions. I've got pressing concerns. So, man, do I need help? But the chances are also that even after acknowledging that moment of neediness humbly before me, you would probably walk away and not acknowledge your very, very specific and tangible need for help every second of the rest of the day. You would not acknowledge your need for God's help to walk away itself, to breathe while you are walking away, to eat, to talk, to work, to play, to exercise, to drive. Most of us don't entertain our minute-by-minute need for God's help. And part of the reason that this is the case is because for most of us, myself included, we've left behind the notion of creature and we've substituted for notions of independence, which is non-dependence, and autonomy. The psalmist, on the other hand, hasn't left the notion of creature behind at all. In fact, it is the primary category for thinking about human beings in this psalm. The psalm nods to our state as creatures by recognizing the need for help as the constant human question, where does my help come from? And from the fact that in the next verse, it links our need for help to the maker, that is the creator of heaven and earth. What the psalmist is describing is the creature, the one who is in constant need of help from God. And I want to probe this just a little bit more. What does it mean to be a creature? I've had up-close and personal acquaintance with creatures for upwards of about 33 years now. But the most concentrated form of creatureliness that I've ever seen is in watching my babies be babies. Our son Winston just hit four months this past week. And he demonstrates all day, every day, the reality that we're trying to wrap our heads around here at this moment. That is the reality that we need help. A creature is defined by the need for help. And so sometimes, just to remind myself of how creaturely I really am, I'll just let him cry and cry and not meet his needs. I'm just joking, people. 
going to call DCFS on me. I'm just joking. But in reality, leaving a baby just for even a moment is enough to underscore the fact that they are a creature constantly in need, constantly dependent, crying, 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 never stopping with the crying. His entire existence is defined by the cry, I need help. He cannot eat without help, pass gas without help, change his diapers without help, endure illness without help, sleep without help, learn to talk, eat, crawl, walk without help. He's defined as a human baby, though in baby form, by his constant need for help. Now, admittedly, the analogy only extends so far, but he is to me as I and you are to God. We, as created human beings, are like a baby, limited. We cannot get around this reality. In fact, this is the reason why all of the stressors, the reasons that we're scared, all of the things that I started with today have their effect on us. We can only do so much. We can only handle so much because we're creatures. And our response to these limits, always trying to extend ourselves to break through the limits that are inherent to our being, lead to incredible amounts of weariness and exhaustion. Are you tired today? That is in part because we've forgotten in the midst of cultural expectations, information overload, and example and example of independence in our culture that we're limited, finite creatures created by God for a deep, deep need for God. Additionally, we as created human beings are like a baby dependent. You're not the master of your fate. You're not the captain of your soul. You're not God. You're created by God, made by God, a creature, which means you're dependent on God, tethered to him in every possible way with every single need. And our response to our dependence is, especially in good old American ways, to declare our independence and our competence to handle our lives our way. But most of us, again, in a moment of honesty, find ourselves directionless and aimless without ground beneath our feet. To be a creature limited and thus weary in our efforts, dependent and thus weary in our efforts at independence, is to be able to affirm these words from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah says, All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the word of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Now, I said at the outset that these are realities that we're discovering in this psalm, and that Psalm 121 is the set of 3D glasses that will help us to see a dimension that we otherwise often don't see. In our cultural context, where standing alone, independence, competence, success, airbrushing, self-made people, naturalistic self-descriptions rule everything, we have an uphill battle if we're going to be 
be able to believe that the defining characteristic of the human being is that of creature, a person in constant need of God's help. But this is the reality for you. This is the reality for me. This is the reality for every single human being that you come into contact with. The question is, do you believe this reality about yourself? Now again, my guess is here at church, we would all nod and say, yes, I am a creature. I need God. But we're out of touch with that reality in the day in and day out reality of stuff of our lives. We don't think about the implications of that for how we think about God and for the way that we engage everything that we do. This kind of thing is really nice in general, even particularly at church, but it doesn't really affect the way that we think about most anything else between the moments that we're here and the moments that we're here again. For the psalmist who writes, I lift my eyes up to the mountains, the need for help, the real need for constant help leads directly to the question, where does my help come from? So if you believe that you're a creature in need of constant help from God, then you're in a position to hear the answer to his question. Here's the second reality. Only God can help. Only God. God can help. You know, while watching the old classic movie, The Sound of Music, recently, I was faced with a conundrum. One one of the main characters, Maria, the one who's here dancing and singing on the hills that are alive with the sound of music, is forced from her life at the convent to a family where she's going to be nannying seven children. The movie, which is a musical, as you well know, moves her, though, from the convent to this house, transitions her to this family as she sings a famous song called I Have Confidence. In the midst of uncertainty and overwhelming feelings about the task ahead, which is nannying seven children, Maria tries to bolster her confidence in her singing by all of her different abilities. And so the refrain throughout the song is, I have confidence, I have confidence in me. Now, my confusion arose at this point while watching this movie for the hundredth time. Why is it that Maria, this person who has previously devoted her life to serving God in solitude at this convent, recognizing clearly that she needs God, is suddenly found in the midst of this pressure turning to herself, inward resources, looking to me to find my confidence? Is that what's actually going on in this song? Well, I don't think so. Three-quarters of the way through the song, Maria has traveled from the convent to the house by bus. And although most of the song and dance has been all about how confident she is in herself, something amazing takes place when the house itself comes into view. She walks up to the gate, and she looks through, and she sees this massive house. And all of the responsibility, the overwhelming feelings suddenly rush back in, and she stops her singing, and she says, Oh, help. Immediately after saying these words, she storms through the gates and runs up to the house, continuing to sing about confidence, but I suspect that this is a different kind of confidence. Has Maria left God behind at the convent only to rely on her own resources and managing these kids? No. The song is meant to contrast Maria's attempt at self Confidence at self-help with her deep-seated need for God. And so her plea, her prayer of, oh, help, is now the thing that sets up her confidence in God. Here's the point. 
Our confidence, that is, our ability to sing Psalm 121 as a song of confidence, shifts from ourselves to God only if we take Maria's prayer directed solely to God on our lips. Her only source of help needs to become our only source of help. Look at the first line of verse 2 in Psalm 121. After asking the question, where does my help come from? The psalmist says, my help comes from the Lord. This is an incredibly profound and yet incredibly simple statement. A statement that we could spend the rest of our lives truly seeking to understand and bring on board. Please don't miss the force of these words. In order to get to the destination, the psalmist believes and states that only God can help him step by step to walk up this path to get up the mountain. Positively, this is the recognition that God is the primary one on whom we depend, on whom we rely. And negatively, this is the recognition that we do not have the internal resources as creatures to navigate life on our own. Take special note of this. We cannot look to ourselves for help because the fact is our help comes from the Lord. Now, this flies in the face of everything that we encounter every day in the rough and tumble of our lives. Let me just give you a few examples of the kinds of things that are so pervasive, the things that tell us that we are competent in ourselves to meet our own needs. What makes 10 billion dollars each year in the U.S. to tell you both what's wrong with you and how you can fix it. The irony is rich on that one, by the way. It's the self-help industry. We call it the self-help industry. Whether it's money management, being successful, losing weight, strengthening your marriage, improving your communication skills, we've got the book and the DVD and the conference and the app for you. You Rather than looking to God... We look to ourselves for help. We also look to other people for help rather than looking to God first. I noticed this on a song that's been recently playing on my playlist. I'm sure many of you have been enjoying Adele's new offering, 25. I was really enjoying her song, Remedy, when I realized the degree to which she's captivated by looking at a strictly horizontal horizon for help. Here's the chorus of the song. She says, when the pain cuts you deep, when the night keeps you from sleeping, just look and you will see that I will be your remedy. When the world seems so cruel and your heart makes you feel like a fool, I promise you, you will see that I will be, I will be your remedy. Adele importantly lands on some harsh realities of human existence, foolishness, cruelty, sleeplessness, pain, but she's unable to see outside the immediate circle of human helpers, and as a result, she's unable to lift her eyes up to recognize that the Lord is her only help. The psalmist, on the other hand, simply says, without any qualifications, my help comes from the Lord. What do we do with this? On the one hand, we're at church and we respect the Bible, so we want to say, oh, that's really good. My help comes from the Lord. I'm going to put it on a bumper sticker. I'm going to sing it. 
But on the other hand, we look at that line and we look at the simplicity of it and we think, come on, this is the real world. Saying my help comes from the Lord is hardly that helpful for the tangible challenges that we face in our real lives. So although we wouldn't want to promote everything that the self-help industry pumps out, and though we might want to qualify Adele's lyrics to some degree, we actually think there's something fundamentally helpful about techniques that tangibly aid in solving our problems. And we actually think there's something fundamentally helpful about looking to other people, relying on those people close to us. So what do we do with this here in Psalm 121? Is the psalmist just out of touch with real life? Or do the 3D glasses that he's wearing help him see something different than we're seeing? Here's the deal. At some point, something insane, something totally crazy happened. Because Christians, because as Christians, we started to think that answering a question with God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit was less than tangible. Let that just sink in for a moment. Here's why this is so crazy. We need help because we're creatures. And the psalm points to the fact that God alone is our help in the most important and fundamental ways possible, but these dots don't connect for us. Uh, Let me try to paint the picture this way. Another kid illustration. My kid, my daughter Charlotte, is two and a half. The, the reason I'm doing this, I don't normally do kid illustration because I haven't seen these two very much yet, recently at least. So there they are, Charlotte girl. She's two and a half. She's fully engaged in expressing her independence. You know, when we ask her if she needs help getting in her booster seat, going to the bathroom, putting on her clothes or her coat or her shoes, she looks at us like we're insane and says, I'll do it by myself. <laughs> Sassy little girl. The other day, I'm sitting like two, maybe three feet away from her, and she's attempting to open up a box that has a toy in it that she wants, and she's getting more and more frustrated. She's trying and trying. She's fighting and fighting, and she can't get it. And when the frustration eventually turns into whining and crying, then I'll step in and say, Charlotte girl, do you need help with that? My offer is to actually either help her open the box or to walk her through it, tell her how she can open the box. But what she'll do is she'll either completely ignore me or she will insanely run out of the room with her problems so that she can attempt to deal with them by herself with her own resources. That is crazy. And that's exactly what we do with God. We don't connect the dots. We don't draw a line from our need for God's tangible help because we have oftentimes flipped a very important order. We've gotten something very important, very backwards, and the psalmist wants to draw the line in the right direction. My help comes from the Lord, comes first, and everything else comes second. God's help is primary and all other help is secondary. We, we start with God. We have to start with God. I flip this order on a regular basis. A few months ago, I was in in the middle of an extremely stressful time for both me and for my family. 
We were under a lot of pressure. The workload was intense, lots and lots of stress. And I did what I always do when I get in this kind of mode. I took out a pen and paper and I started to prioritize my tasks and then to manage the snot out of my calendar to get it all done. And in that moment, I experienced this slight little bit of relief because I thought maybe, just maybe, all of the stuff that needs to get done in the coming weeks is going to get done and it's going to be okay and we're going to be okay. And the next day, I wake up, and I'm driving out to our DeKalb campus to meet with some staff and a couple of leaders in our college ministry. And as I'm doing so, I'm reflecting on yesterday and the little bit of relief that is now gone because the stress is coming back. And suddenly, I realize that I sat down with a pen and paper and wrote out a solution to my problems that did not reference God or include God, and I did not talk to God about any of it. I rely on my time management, my prone skills to time management. I'm good at that. And I will manage my calendar and I will prioritize my tasks and I will get that stuff done. And immediately, graciously, God's spirit just pointed it out and I confessed the sin for what it is, idolatry, going to something else for rescue than to God. And I asked him for forgiveness. And in that moment, there was such relief about finally recognizing where I needed to go first. Now, interestingly, after talking with God about it, processing it with God, my schedule didn't change. The time management stuff that I was using didn't change. The prioritization of the task list didn't change. But I was suddenly doing it without the burden of having to do it on my own resources because I was now relying on God for help. Here's the question for all of us. When you need help, and we just learned a little bit ago that we are constantly in need of help as creatures. To what or to whom do you look? We need to explicitly refer to God's activity in our lives and we need to speak to him, that is, pray, about all the things that we need throughout the course of a, of a day. You know, the psalmist's line, my help comes from the Lord, is a way of saying that we start with God before we go anywhere else. We shouldn't try a bunch of stuff and then when it fails, say, oh, I should go talk to God like I do. No, it's exactly the other way around. We begin with the fundamental confession that God is our help. And then the practical action steps, which must be taken, are put in the right place. So I'm less prone to focus on my posture and breathing and pace when I run, all good techniques for running, because I want to focus first on asking God to sustain my legs and my breathing and the fact that I'm running, and then I want to put energy into those other things. The same goes for driving, point A to point B. I'm going to ask God to help get me to my destination, to help me drive well so that I actually make it there. Grocery shopping, sitting in class, doing schoolwork or office work, writing a sermon, playing a game, cooking a meal, hanging with the kids, washing dishes, each one of these things is an opportunity to acknowledge our need for God's very tangible help by actually asking him to help us. Now, some of you might be thinking that you're not really convinced that God cares about most of these things or that he really wants to help you in the nitty-gritty of everyday life. And my response is, this is precisely the kind of personal, present God that God is. And that's the final reality that we're going to look at today. Why is it that God is the one that we should look to for help? Reality number three, God is maker and guard. 
Follow along as I read the rest of the psalm, verses 2 through 8. He asks this question and answers it. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Why is it that God is the one that we should look to when we need help all the time as we need help? First, because he's the maker of heaven and earth. Where we, as creatures, are limited and dependent, God isn't. He's limitless and independent. Where we, as creatures, don't have the resources to meet our own needs, God does have the resources in himself to meet those needs. All of this means that going to God for help can relieve us of our deep exhaustion from trying to meet our needs on our own. Going to God for help can provide the direction that we need in our aimless wandering. You see, this is God's world, the maker of heaven and earth, and we live in it by his sustaining presence and kindness. And upon that grace upon grace, he's mighty to act on our behalf. So please catch this. God isn't stressed about the things that you're stressed about. He isn't worried about the things that you're worried about. He isn't scared about the things that you're scared of. And it's not because he's God, distant and detached from these kinds of human realities. No, God isn't stressed and worried and scared about the things that we are because God, exactly as the God who's able to help us in all of our neediness, has decided to make us and to care for us. What God makes, he cares for. So why is it that we should look to God for our help? First, because he's the maker of heaven and earth. And second, because he's our guard. The one whose care for us is the main theme of verses 3 through 8. Before we even look at those details, I just want to take a second to combat a major error that wreaks havoc in our world. I want to address it first with a negative statement and then with a positive, a wonderful positive statement. Here's the negative. God did not, God did not make the world, put humans in it, and then start the clock ticking while he went out to get some tea. No way. Here's the wonderful positive statement. God made the world, he put humans in it, and he is intimately involved in his world and with his people. This is readily apparent in verses 3 through 8. Notice, for instance, that the Lord is the subject of every sentence in verses 3 through 8. And notice that his activity is described with the word watches, which I'm calling guards because I thought it was a little bit creepy to call God the watcher. just seems a little strange. In contrast to this distant God, this psalm and the Bible as a whole proclaims very simply that God is active. In fact, according to this psalm, his involvement gets super personal and comprehensive. And as a result, it reminded me of this wonderful old Sunday school song, chock full of good theology, titled, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. Four times we hear the title of the song repeated, he's got the whole world in his hands. Then we hear that God has our brothers and sisters in his hands and that the sun 
rain, moon, stars, wind, rivers, mountain, oceans, seas are in his hands. He's got everyone here, there, and everywhere in his hands. He's got you, and he's got me in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Look at the way that the psalmist puts it. He says that God guards our lives. And to illustrate this poetically, he moves, knows in the text, take, the, take a look at this. He moves from our feet in verse 3 to our hands in verse 5 to our whole bodies in verse 6 and then to our very life itself in verse 7. I love that verse 3, the psalmist says when thinking about his walk up this mountain, he will not let your foot slip. And I love it. Because not letting your foot slip assumes an intimate knowledge of your foot. The placement of your foot along the path. You see, God doesn't simply say in some general and impersonal sovereignty, I've got it, the distant and high God putting it all together, together managing things from a distance. Instead, he says very intimately, I've got you. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and he's got me in his hands. The psalmist also says that God guards our time, both present and future. The final line, verse 8, says, The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Again, I love this. Because living anciently about our present time and a future that's not yet robs us of the opportunity to live today with the support of the God who is our help in the present and already knows exactly how the future is going to unfold. See, God is our maker and guard intimately watching over our lives for each and every today and every tomorrow. And when pastors Jim and Clayton asked me to speak in this series, they were drawing up this series on the Psalms, and they said they wanted me to pick a category that I wanted to address and a psalm specifically that would get us there. And lots of psalms came to mind, psalms that have been important, but in the end, just a few seconds after thinking about it, there was only one psalm that I could reasonably pick, and that was Psalm 121. And the reason is that this psalm and the God, more importantly, that it witnesses to has been our constant companion as a family over the past number of months. We've experienced this new addition, Winston, this new normal to our life. We experienced a week-long stay in the hospital for a semi-serious illness, and we've experienced a whole batch of anxiety and uncertainty, vocational, relational, and financial, as we're trying to navigate a path toward a Ph.D., and as we as a family have journeyed up this mountain, this song, this song has been our song. And it's been a song of confidence, not in our abilities and not in escaping the difficulty. But it's been confidence in the simple statement, our help comes from the Lord. Because it really, truly, and most fundamentally does, because that help is God himself, God's sustaining presence, God with us. And that's way better than any simple solutions that I could offer or that somebody else could give to me. As we conclude, I want to invite our worship teams to come and I want to invite you all to prepare to give as we close the service with one more song. But as we do, I want to ask you a question, a simple question. How can each one of us begin to sing the song of the psalmist, this song of confidence? 
The simplest way is to actually take the psalm on our lips, and I would encourage you to take all of the psalms on your list, as we've said over the course of the series, to read them, pray them, sing them on your own. Many of them are this cry for help, this recognition of confidence. But this psalm in particular, I would encourage you to memorize it and pray it and get it deep into your bones, because if you do, it'll begin to work on you, because it will constantly draw attention to the companion along the path, the companion in whom we put our confidence, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your grace to us, especially in Christ Jesus, to be able to acknowledge our need for help as creatures and then to acknowledge our need for help as sinful creatures, people who have independently walked away from you in need of your grace and mercy in Christ. We are so thankful for your constant care, your grace expressed in so many ways. And I pray that you would open our eyes afresh to the reality of our need for your help, that you are the only one who can truly, most fundamentally help because your maker your guard. We trust ourselves to you. And even as we sing and as we give, we pray our hearts would be drawn near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.